Russian prosecutors warn Western companies of arrests and asset seizures. McDonald's, Coke, Procter & Gamble, and IBM are reportedly among those who have been warned. And I'll talk with Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker, about Vancouver-based Ani Group in the local real estate space. They want access to all the young talent that is fairly tech-savvy and more affordable than people on the coasts that you can get by being in Chicago. And it's just an interesting thing because it looks great, even though you say some developers saying, ah, you know, property taxes and there's there's greener pastures in Nashville or Austin or Columbus or wherever. You know, it's just interesting to see someone make a long-term bet like Ani's doing. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, March 15th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. So, Danny, you've recently done some reporting on Vancouver-based Ani Group, which is very active here in the city. What have you learned? So, Ani sort of flies under the radar you know there's this vancouver-based company family-owned that's only been in chicago since 2012 when they bought an office building at 200 north LaSalle street and they've you know grown their footprint as downtown chicago has grown over the past decade uh, up until the pandemic certainly making some pretty significant investments especially in the local apartment market they did a couple apartment projects and then COVID hit and these guys have basically in no way, you know, backed down from their really heavy bet on Chicago. A lot of people maybe first heard of them a couple of years ago when they started talking about this big plan they have to develop, you know, as many as 2,700 apartments on Goose Island. They bought the southern tip of Goose Island from Greyhound. It was a Greyhound bus maintenance facility. They have not moved forward with it yet, but they have city council approval to build this five tower project there with tons of apartments, you know, other uses too. They also just recently closed on a almost $170 million purchase of an office building at 225 West Randolph in the loop, which is an almost vacant and outdated office building. And who is buying an uh, almost vacant, outdated office building in the loop right now when office demand is a little bit cloudy? These guys are doing it. Um, And then they've also done other things. They bought the Ace Hotel in Fulton Market recently, which they rebranded as their own uh, brand that is going to be the first in what they hope is a nationwide chain of these boutique hotels. And they've got other stuff going on in Fulton Market. Plus, they also broke ground recently on uh, another uh, apartment building in River West. It's The point is these guys have are really, really heavily invested and kind of closely tied to the comeback of downtown Chicago. And they don't get a lot of attention. You know, I think what's interesting in terms of the broader narrative of Chicago is, you know, you still have developers like this that are saying, we see a really bright future for downtown Chicago, despite perhaps the narrative and what is happening right now with crime and certainly with property taxes. That's what you hear a lot of developers say. 
I, I don't know if these guys are contrarian because it's there are other people that are betting on downtown as well, but they're not in every market. There's they're heavy. These guys are they're again they're based in Vancouver. They've done a lot in Seattle, especially Los Angeles and Phoenix, and then Chicago. It's like it's not like they're everywhere, but they've they really like Chicago for for several reasons. And um, you know, it's just interesting to see developers ignore, not necessarily ignore, but certainly overcome some of the hurdles that other developers complain about here and say, you know, we think this is the place to invest in real estate. Not only this is the place to invest in real estate, but we're going to buy an old office building. Yeah. That seems double contrarian. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're about to spend $150 million, you know, renovating this building that is going to be almost entirely empty. And you kind of go, well, you know, why would you do that? We have a record high vacancy in the downtown office market, but there's this flight to quality, you know, companies that are saying, well, we need to be in really nice new buildings um, or recently renovated buildings because we have to compel our workers to be here instead of working from home. We want them to be here. Probably the most important piece to what they're doing with that building is that they have landmark status for the building now and they got a class L incentive, which is one of the key reasons that the post office had such success the old post office had such success uh, leasing up its office space was when you restore or, you know, basically redevelop or, or you know, renew and give life into a, a landmark building, you get a property tax break through the county where for 12 years you get a, a break, you know, a significant reduction on your property taxes. Those costs are usually costs that are passed along to tenants who move into those buildings. So it basically allows them to undercut the market. If you own that building, you're going to put the money into it and it's a risk. But in terms of getting tenants in there, you know, you, you will probably have a, a bit of an advantage on the cost front um, to, to get people in there. So, you know, and, and certainly they are just saying, like, they believe that, you know, it's, it's got great access to the loop. It's, you know, to, to, you know, transportation and it's right, you know, all around uh, the many reasons that the loop has been popular for so long. But it's also around the corner from LaSalle Street where there's just tons of empty space in older buildings. And uh, those are harder to justify. So I think that there's just really interesting gambles that they're making. Some of them, you know, you think about Goose Island and I mean, the apartment market is just continuing to boom downtown. I mean, you know, rents, you know, surpassing pre pandemic levels. So that one doesn't seem, even though it's super ambitious in its size, it doesn't seem as much of a, wow, why would they do that? It's like, Hey, you know, you know, there's never been people living on Goose Island before. And it's a pretty cool location and they can do some really interesting stuff with it. And, you know, they, they could probably find some takers for it, but the reticence that you see from other developers, you just don't see at all with Ani. And that's what I was talking to them about in this, for the story was tell me, you guys, wh what do you like about it? What, why aren't you worried about a B and C that everyone else says? And they say, yeah, you know, every city's got its problems, but we think that the population growth in the city, which was shown by the 2020 census and the fact that Chicago, you know, just, led the nation in corporate relocations, you know, the acts, the, the deep pool of, of tech savvy talent, you know, the reasons that companies move to Chicago are all things that they say, you know, if we're putting this on a scale and weighing all that good stuff against the crime and real issues, I mean, that they're saying, look, there's, these are problems we need to take care of safety, the vibrancy of downtown property taxes, you know, the fiscal instability of government. They, they see that the, the good stuff outweighs the bad. Have you seen other similar gambles from them in, in other cities where they, they have a presence? 
You know, they've invested really heavily in Los Angeles, especially downtown LA. And that was growing quite a bit before the pandemic, at least, you know, maybe even gentrifying in some places that might be a little bit controversial in terms of what they were, you know, in terms of that the development of that area, not to say that was all them, but they've been really heavy in Los Angeles overall, especially downtown, you know, Phoenix, Seattle. I mean, these are areas of the country that have done quite well in terms of their growth of population. So Chicago kind of stands out, I guess, in that way, that they're making a bit more of a bet on an area that's not thought of as, hey, this is like the Sun Belt where, where there's just, you know, hordes of people moving. So, you know, it's a little bit more of a, at least from the outside, it just looks like their riskiest market that they're, that they're into. But, you know, another piece to their thesis is that this is a company that doesn't sell. They've been in business in their current entity for about 30 years. They've never sold a property in the United States. You know, when you think about that, that's really a driving force behind what a lot of real estate investors do is, well, can I buy this and can I make an investment into it, add value and sell it and obviously get a nice return for my investors? Well, when you have someone that's basically saying, we're investing it for the long run. We don't have a three-year, five-year time horizon to own this property you can kind of look past or maybe, you know, again, not ignore, but you don't put as much weight in some of the maybe short-term challenges or trends that are happening in a market. You just kind of say, if you believe in the long-term health of a market, you can do this and own this property for a long time. And that is what they're, what they're doing here. If they were looking to get in and fill up a building in the next three years, five years, and then sell it, would they do all this? I'm not sure. You know, maybe, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, but I think that'd be much harder for them to justify. So that's another piece to it, I think is, you know, it's sort of a testament of what they're doing is they're saying, you know, someone who is who really only makes long-term bets is positive about Chicago. And, you know, and I think that's just something that we, we talk a lot about these dueling narratives of Chicago about all the issues of downtown that are very clear for everyone to see today. But the other side of it, of all these companies that are moving still to downtown because they want access to all the young talent that is fairly tech savvy and more affordable than people on the coasts that you can get by being in Chicago. And it's just an interesting thing because it looks great. Even though you say some developers saying, ah, you know, property taxes and there's, there's greener pastures in Nashville or Austin or Columbus or wherever. You know, it's just interesting to see someone make a long-term bet like Ani's doing. I mean, I feel like we never hear that narrative at all. We never hear that strategy, really. Have you seen any other companies kind of playing that way? I mean, certainly, again, they're not the only developer that's saying, hey, we believe in Chicago in a big way. But, you know, the others that we see doing that are, are, are here. You know, Sterling Bay is probably the most prominent one. They're based here. Related Midwest obviously has connections through, you know, it's it, through, through related, uh, but uh, which is not here, but, but related Midwest is, you know, very focused here. The group that's re redeveloping the Michael Reese site, you know, at Burnham Lakefront, their local team. So yeah, we don't see too many outsiders, people that aren't really just focused on this market that are really betting very heavily here. That's to say when they're not betting everywhere, you know, it's not like Ani is in Chicago and they're in 50 other cities. They really believe in this urban center. So, you know, you don't have too many of them, especially at the scale that Ani is. Yeah. And that long-term play strategy is really interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's another company that does that called Irvine. They own 300 North LaSalle, which is a big glass office building that Kirkland and Ellis is in that they're going to be moving out of to Salesforce Tower. And they also own 71 South Wacker and, and one North Wacker. They have the exact same approach where they are kind of in this from the standpoint of, hey, we are not short-term owners. We're going to be here for a while. And so you don't have to make any rash moves. You don't have to say, oh my gosh, we need to just kind of give away the farm to get a tenant in here because we got to sell this building and return that cash to our investors. It's just different type of, of uh, real estate investor that's doing that. And Ani fits in with that uh, description. In addition to this older office building that we were talking about, what is the latest on the, the eight acre parcel of Goose Island? What's the timeline on that? So they've got city council approval for it and they didn't really say yet when they're planning to begin the work, but I, I would assume that they're going to, they're, they're moving on that as soon as possible. You know, they want to start developing um, that site. I, I'm sure they need to line up financing. They didn't name the, the full cost, but we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of the project. It's not all going to get done at once, certainly. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we really see, you know, work starting on that this year. Again, they're underway right now with a an apartment building that's just east of, of Fulton Market, and they've got a big development site. They just closed on uh, the acquisition of a, a little extra piece they needed for it at 357 North Green, which is, for people who know Fulton Market or who have come in on the train, you know, you go right by this site and you probably see the Ani signs all over the fencing, all over it. Just a vacant site basically used mostly for, for parking and things like that, that uh, they could develop something as much as 700,000 square feet of, uh, of a commercial building there. So we'll see what they do there. You know, they're still in acquisition mode. I, they're not slowing down. You know, they, they're not really tipping their hand on what's next for them, but, you know, I don't see them slowing down. And, you know, it's funny because they could have done more. They, it was sort of like a, a little bit of a blip and not, didn't get a ton of attention. But a few years ago, they actually were the highest bidder for one of the largest sites that is now in, in what Sterling Bay have ultimately acquired to, for Lincoln Yards. You know, the city had this 18-acre site, the fleet and facility management site that was you know, along the, the river, kind of just north of where that Home Depot is, as many people know, along North Avenue, that Ani actually outbid Sterling Bay by $10 million for this site. And Sterling Bay was, you know, this was like a crucial piece to what they were wanted to build, you know, uh, accruing all this land to develop this mega project. And the city basically, they ultimately sold it to Sterling Bay. They said that Sterling Bay had the ability to close much faster than Ani was planning to do. But, you know, it was like Ani's been there. It's purchased sites, but it's been there trying to also purchase other pretty big things. You know, they're, they're a little bit stealthy uh, compared to Sterling Bay and, and Related Midwest and others that we talk a lot about. But uh, these guys are here in a big way. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about them again. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, living in a downtown apartment will only get more expensive this year. After rising more than 30% in 2021, downtown rents are now set to increase at least another 5% this year. We'll talk about that and more right after this. You're invited to join Cranes for our Spring Real Estate Forum, a conversation with Fritz Kagey. 
When he took office in 2018, Fritz Kage set out to make the Cook County property tax assessment process more accurate, transparent, and fair. In a conversation with Crane's senior reporter, Albie Galoon, Kage will discuss the steps he's taken to accomplish those goals, the obstacles he has encountered, and what lies ahead as his campaign for re-election gears up. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday that McDonald's, Yum! Brands, and IBM are among companies that reportedly received warnings from Russian prosecutors threatening to arrest corporate leaders or seize assets for criticizing the government or withdrawing from the country. Citing people familiar with the matter, the Wall Street Journal reported that prosecutors were in touch with a broad range of companies to deliver their warnings, including tech, food, banking, and apparel firms. Threats of lawsuits and the potential seizure of trademarks and other assets have prompted at least one targeted company to limit communications out of Russia with the rest of the firm, and others are reportedly looking to move executives out of the country. The move by Russian prosecutors comes as the U.S. and other governments enacted sanctions against the country for the war being waged against Ukraine. Yum!, McDonald's, and Apple are among some of the largest corporate brands that temporarily paused operations or sales in Russia, citing reasons ranging from opposition to the war to disrupted supply chains and potential repercussions caused by the sanctions and doing business across borders. Energy giants exited the country under pressure from their governments, severing decades-long relationships for pumping oil and natural gas that helped drive the Russian economy. And related, global airlines are reportedly going to great lengths to avoid Russian airspace, but few to the extent of Finnair, the flag carrier of Finland. It's flying thousands of miles around its northern neighbor, now taking routes abandoned decades ago at the end of the Cold War. Chicago-based United Airlines canceled two of its four flights to India after deciding to end Russian overflights on March 1st. Trips from San Francisco to Delhi and Newark, New Jersey to Mumbai wouldn't work without refueling or heavily restricting the amount of cargo and passengers, which is a deal-breaker for many flights. United is routing its Newark Delhi flights over Saudi Arabia and its Chicago Delhi flight over Turkey, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan. But the return flight to Chicago is 17 hours, two hours longer than using Russian airspace. That according to data from flight tracking service FlightAware. One of the world's longest flights, Qantas Airways' Sydney-Darwin-London service, flies through the Middle East and Southern Europe now instead of over China and Russia, adding an hour to flights already pushing 17 hours long, the company said last month. Air France has altered flight plans for five Asian destinations from Paris, including Beijing and Tokyo, to fly a southerly route over Turkey, Kazakhstan, and China. The reroutes add one to two hours per flight, according to the carrier. Japan Airlines is routing its Tokyo service to London using a longer northerly route via Alaska and Greenland. Flight times now take an extra three hours, adding to an average 12-hour trip. Similarly, the extra 4.5 hours that Japan Airlines now needs for its London to Tokyo flight via Canada and Alaska runs over $20,000 in extra fuel for the Boeing 787-9 on the route, based on current fuel prices. 
And the economic burden of these new flight routes is measured not only in additional jet fuel, but also in extended duty times and the potential for more crews being required on some longer flights. Airlines may face additional maintenance costs for heavier use of their long-haul jets and some new overflight fees from countries they may not have flown over previously. And of course, there's also the extra time that customers will spend in transit. The diversions are also impacting airlines' commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Marathon Pipeline Incorporated has shut down a pipeline in Illinois that leaked crude oil into a local canal, the company said on Saturday. Parent company Marathon Petroleum Corporation said in a statement that the leak into the Cahokia Diversion Channel just north of St. Louis was first detected on Friday morning and booms were deployed to try to contain the oil. An estimated 165,000 gallons were released into the canal before containment, the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency told local news station KTVI. There are reportedly no water intakes or private wells in the immediate vicinity of the leak, according to Marathon, and the cause of the rupture is under investigation. If you're looking for an apartment in downtown Chicago this spring, you may want to brace yourself for some sticker shock. Crane's Albie Galoon reports that the net rent at high-end or Class A apartment buildings rose 32% last year, while the net rent at less expensive Class B properties jumped 34%. That according to the Chicago office of Integra Realty Resources, a consulting and appraisal firm. After dropping in 2020, rents rebounded from a low base, but they've now recovered everything they lost and even hit new highs. A hypothetical 1,000-square-foot Class A apartment in downtown Chicago rented for $3,370 per month at the end of 2020, and that's up from $2,550 a month a year earlier, when desperate landlords were offering bargains. Demand for apartments dropped in 2020 as the economy slipped into a recession and more downtown professionals worked from home earlier in the pandemic. Absorption, a key measure of demand that reflects the change in the number of occupied downtown apartments, rose to a record of nearly 7,100 units in 2021, according to Integra. The market essentially caught up from 2020 when absorption totaled negative 238 units, the first year of negative absorption since 2005. You can find more detail on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. Please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. Until then, I hope you'll take the time to check out another podcast from Crane's Audio Studio. It's AD Q&A with Crane's government and politics reporter, AD Quigg. Her latest episode examines two years of COVID with Chicago's Commissioner of Public Health, Dr. Allison Arwady. We're in a beautiful place from a COVID perspective right now, and I've got people calling me a murderer, you know, um, and I've got police cars parked outside my house. And it's, it's, Is that it's, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I've had a lot of craziness, honestly. Threats. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of people from outside Chicago want to come in, especially on the sort of anti-vaccine front. I was going to ask, because social media and politics obviously played a role in this whole pandemic discourse the past two plus years. But there's going to be another pandemic. Are you worried that if a pandemic hits again, that the anti-vaccine movement, the anti-vax movement 
is going to have a better playbook and a more willing audience to hear them out. Forget about the next pandemic. I am concerned about current vaccinations. We have seen, you know, an unbelievably organized campaign of misinformation around vaccines broadly. And we have seen this interesting match between people who don't believe in vaccines, tying that actually to political agendas, which I certainly, you know, I'm a pediatrician. I am very used to talking to people about vaccine hesitancy. I'm well aware of what happens when when you can when when information gets out that makes people scared about vaccines. But I was not expecting it to get so much into politics and identity as it has.